Oh, Lord, our God, we worship you this day, and we thank you and praise you for your kindness and mercy to us. We thank you that you have given us your word, and we ask that you would grant us the grace to understand your word. I pray, Lord, as the pastor that you have appointed to this church, that you would grant me the grace I need to explain your word in a manner which is pleasing to you and beneficial to your people. O oh Lord, we ask that you would teach us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. As we launch into James chapter 2, let me just say a word, a quick few words about James chapter 1. James chapter 1 is like a prelude to his symphony. James 1 is where James gives us the playing field, so to speak. He tells us what his main themes are going to be in the following four chapters. He gives us four shadows of the things that are on his heart. And in chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5, with all due respect, he basically lays into the people of God. He has been laying into the people of God for over 2,000 years with um, unremitting, unrelenting vigor. James doesn't stop. There is no let up to him. He is on a prophetic roll. He is really on a prophetic tirade. And he has some of the most hard things for us to hear as human beings. He has some of the most hard things for us to hear as New Covenant believers. James has given us the the field, the framework. And he basically says, if you don't pass these tests. If you don't pass the tests that God is giving to you, that I'm laying out for you, then your faith is not genuine. And if your faith is not genuine, then you're lost. That's basically what James is doing in James chapter 1. Now, as he moves into James chapter 2, this first section, he pushes us to real practical measures. And if you just look backwards, look at verse 1, chapter 27. I spoke about this last week. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And then he launches... My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. In order for Jesus, excuse me, in order for James, the half-brother of Jesus, to make this assertion, it would be useless for him to say this under under the inspiration of the Spirit if this type of situation wasn't actually occurring. For instance, it would really be silly for me as your pastor, to warn you that the Battle of the Bulge was going to occur. Battle of the Bulge happened a long time ago. You would have every right to think that I had tossed my cap if I were to warn you that the Battle of the Bulge was going to happen because it's already happened. A minister and a prophet, especially like James, has got to speak to concrete situations that God has given him. This was happening... And again, he says, my brethren. This was happening in the church. 
Remember, James is writing maybe 12 or so years after the resurrection of his half-brother. This is the most likely, almost without certainty, the first written piece of New Testament literature. And when you read the book of Acts, you, you get the sense that the church in its earliest days was just on fire. That they were unified. They were being pressed by the authorities, but they were unified in their faith in Christ. And yet they had their problems very early on. We see that in Paul's literature, and we see this very early in James. But this is a terrible thing. And he gives us this scenario, a hypothetical to us. If there should come into an assembly the man with gold rings, he's dressed up. He is on the latest fashion. He is showing that he is wealthy, that he has all the trappings of the world's goods. And James says, if that person comes into the assembly, he doesn't say that the person is not welcome. But if the church runs to the rich person, and you have to remember, the church was different 2,000 years ago. They didn't have a building. Well, they probably had, they had a building. They had to have a place. But it was a little different. They didn't have bulletins run off. It's a little more informal. Imagine this scenario actually happening. Put yourself in this place 2,000 years ago. A rich person comes in and the ushers, and I'm not picking on the ushers, the ushers tell them or the elders of the church run towards that person and say, hey, you, come here. Come here. I'm paraphrasing here. Don't, that's a nice suit. You can sit down here. You can sit here, right up front. You're welcome. And then right after him, someone comes in in shabby clothes. And they push him off to the side. You sit over there. Get to the back of the bus. Or, better yet, sit here under my footstool. I have to remember that the early church was primarily made up of those who weren't extremely rich, noble, or mighty. There certainly were rich folks in the church, but the first Christians, and remember our Lord's background, Our Lord's background was from humble circumstances. He wasn't born into a high and mighty family. James didn't grow up in a high and mighty family. This situation was actually occurring. And we still do this in the church today. Not quite as explicitly as this. I don't think any of us would ever tell anyone, you can be my footstool. And James is using exaggerated prophetic language to get a point across that this is unacceptable behavior in the church of Jesus Christ. Now notice something, it's subtle. In verse 1, what does he call Christ? The Lord of glory. He's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then immediately talks about this chat with a gold ring and find apparel. And what James is trying to get across is Look, you're 
basically turning this fellow with the nice suit and the gold rings into an idol. Great. He's done well. Fantastic. His stock portfolio is doing well. But guess what? He's not the Lord of glory. There's only one Lord of glory. And that's who you worship. And then he tells them, if they do this, Listen, have you not shown, in verse 4, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He's not talking about the world here. He's talking about in the church, have you not become judges amongst yourselves with evil thoughts? What's very interesting about this, and you know I don't bring Greek and Hebrew into the pulpit, but this is interesting. The word that our Bibles translate as evil, this is how you pronounce it in the Greek. Listen carefully. Porneia. P-O-R-N-E-I-A. That's the word that James uses to describe the evil thoughts. Porneia. You could easily translate it as filthy disgusting, degenerate thoughts by showing partiality to those who are rich amongst fellow Christians. Don't think for one minute that this type of thing doesn't happen in the church and it hasn't always happened in the church. Again, we won't do this quite as boldly. But if we think that our hearts are any different than those that James is writing to, then we're sadly mistaken. The human heart has the tendency to truly admire gold or silver or paper or big houses or cars or the trappings of wealth and what that wealth represents. And the wealth represents power. It's a fundamental flaw in the human character to worship money. It's a powerful idol. And James, in the the tradition of the Old Testament prophets, is railing against it. And we do well to heed his message. We also need to remember that in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Now, let's unpack this verse just a little bit. The kingdom is not promised to the poor. The kingdom is promised to those who love him. The rich aren't disqualified. Nicodemus was probably rich. Joseph of Arimathea was rich. Abraham was rich. But remember what Jesus says to the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler comes up to Jesus. You probably know the story. And he says, good, t- good teacher, tell me, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Trying to test him. And he said, you know the commandments. And he gives him a list of a couple of the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, I've kept these all from my youth. 
then the text tells us that Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you lack. One thing you lack. Go, sell all of your possessions, give to the poor, take up your cross and follow me. And the rich young ruler looks downcast and walks away. And then Jesus says these remarkable, scary words. He says, how difficult it is, he's talking to his disciples, how difficult it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples are amazed at this statement because, why do you think the disciples would have been amazed at that statement? Because they were under the impression, as many of us are, that just because somebody has money, that God has blessed them. You have money, God must love you. I'm poor, God must not love me. And they said, well then, who can be saved then, Lord? I mean, after all, the rich are the ones who are blessed by God. If, they can't, if it's difficult for them to be saved, then, then what about the poor? And Jesus says, he, he unpacks it more. He said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. We need to pay very careful attention to this language. You can't water it down. And then the disciples say, who then can be saved? And then Jesus gives the bomb. He said, with men, this would be impossible. With God, nothing is impossible. But the warning is that riches and wealth of this world make it difficult for people to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not because of the riches themselves. It's because of what the riches do to our hearts. And it's very easy for us when we have money in the bank, when we have refrigerators full of food, when we have more than one car, when we have a decent amount of this world's goods compared to other people, that it's easy, it's easy for us to say, it's okay. I got this. I have this covered. I'm okay. If things go bad this week, I have money in the bank. Don't we realize that it can all be gone just like that? Just like that. Jesus tells another parable about riches. Man gathers up all that he has. It's an agrarian economy. Gathers all his stuff into these big storehouses. Builds more barns. Puts all his stuff in. And then he sits down and says "You can to himself, you can rest content soul. You have fine goods that will last a long time. And then Jesus says, the fool, the fool, don't you realize that your soul is required of you this very day? In other words, the grain, which was an agrarian economy, it was, there was money. You have cattle? I have corn. Let's make a trade. By the way, I have a lot of corn. You don't have that many cattle, so give me more cattle. Extortion. He says, your soul is required of you that very day. We need to pay careful attention to this type of language. Because no matter how humble our circumstances might be, let's be brutally honest with all of us, and none of us really came from rich backgrounds. I don't know all of your backgrounds, but nobody in our church comes from high and mighty stock, really. But compared to most people on this planet, we have more than a decent amount of this world's goods. We do. Did you walk here today? 
Well, some people might. <laughs> Did you walk a long distance without shoes? Did you have to walk here today? Did you drive here? Maybe some of you took two cars. Do you have another car waiting at home for you? Is there food waiting for you at home? For lunch, supper, if you want to call it that. Do you have food for dinner? Did you have breakfast? Do you have food for the rest of the week? Do you have money to buy food for the rest of the week? Yes, most of us do. So when these type of verses hit us, we need to pay very careful attention because I'm going to just presuppose that you care about your soul and that you care about going to heaven. So what you really need to understand is that money won't get you there. What did the Beatles say? Money can't buy me love? Listen, money just buys stuff. Money will not buy you heaven. It will not. And it can all be gone in a very, very brief period. It can all disappear, literally, overnight. What's ironic is that as he continues, they've dishonored the poor in verse 6. And then he says, don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? The church was prone to honor the rich, but ironically, they were honoring those who were oppressing them, which really is fundamentally sick. If somebody's beating up on you, generally speaking, you don't you don't admire the person. And what was happening in the ancient church happens today. If you have money, it's easier to maneuver around in the legal system. It just is. It's nice if you know the mayor, you have money in the bank. If you go to court. You might get a good verdict when maybe you shouldn't have. It's a possibility. Hopefully not. Justice is supposedly supposedly blind. She might be blind, but she has hands. (laughs) And she can hold gold in one of them. But it's sick when you think about it. The, The early church here was kowtowing, bowing down to the rich. Maybe they'll put something in the collection plate. But the rich were oppressing them. The rich were putting their, the foot of their... The, the rich were using the church, the average church member, as a footstool, and yet the church was looking up to them. How crazy is that? How, how bizarre is that? That's what sin does to us. It, it sends us for a loop and twists our values all around. It makes us not think clearly. And then verses 8 through 11 talk about the royal law. And what it points out to us is that the law of God is of one piece. It has many parts, but it's one whole. And the summation of the law is the two great commands. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, the entirety of your being. And, by the way, love your neighbor as yourself. It's basically what James talked about in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. The message is always the same. Repent and believe the gospel. The message is almost always the same. Look after those who can't look after themselves. The message is always the same. Be still and know that he is God. The message is always the same. Be humble before the Lord. 
You see, the law of God is of one piece. And he tells us that if we show partiality, in verse 9, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. You understand that. This is fundamental doctrine here. If you violate one aspect of God's law, in God's court, you're guilty of the whole thing. That's why James says so. He uses a couple of prime examples. He who said do not commit adultery, that, that's a big one. Also said do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, which is a good thing, James would never say, hey, it's good to be an adulterer. But you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And then he tells us, so speak and so do as those who what? Will be judged by the law of liberty. He calls it the law of liberty again. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is why I really encourage you to dig into the book of James. This is, not, this is not hard to understand. You could read this and figure out what he was saying. You read parts of the book of Ezekiel, parts of Revelation, you might get a little confused. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what James is driving at here, does he? If you have money, be careful. If you have money, look out for those who don't have money. And if you don't have money, don't kowtow to those who do. Not very difficult to understand, a little harder to implement. So I'm begging you to dig into this book. Just take the liturgy home and read the portions that we read each week. All of us could do that. There's so much practical information in this book. And we also need to be aware of the Lord's hatred for this financial favoritism. This, trust me, if you haven't read your Old Testament, it's replete. God can't stand it when his people favor the rich. He hates unjust scales. He hates them. He hates them. And those who don't show mercy to the poor, well, what does it say? I'm not saying it. Judgment is without mercy to the one who, who has shown no mercy. In this context, it, this isn't an abstract category. This is showing mercy to those who are poor, those who are less fortunate than us. And you want to know something? All of us can find someone who's got less than we do. <laughs> we may not be rich by the world standards, but there's always somebody worse off. There's always somebody worse off. Certainly when we give to missions... Those orphans in India are certainly far less off than we are. They're less off than even people in India. And when you're poor in India, believe you me, you're poor. We need to put these things into practice, brothers and sisters. We need to take these warnings very, very clearly. Let me ask you this. Do you want mercy from God or judgment? Those are really the only two choices. If you want justice and judgment from God, then please, I beg you, not only stay for the congregational meeting, but stay afterwards so I can counsel you. Because you do not want justice from God. 
you want mercy. Because we need mercy. Why do we need mercy? Because the law convicts us as transgressors. You see, we as Christians are to imitate God. All human beings are created in the image of God. Only Christians are recreated after the image of Christ, who is the exact image of God, according to the book of Hebrews. And we have the honor and the privilege and the responsibility of imitating God, of representing God. Paul calls us ambassadors of God. What does an ambassador do? An ambassador does not have the authority to create the message. The ambassador only has the authority to convey the message of the state and the powers that he represents. By not looking after the poor, by looking down upon the poor, by actively persecuting the poor, the Church of Jesus Christ through the centuries has marred its own image. So there are, quite frankly, some denominations that the claim is, well, does the head of that church sleep in the woods? There are some churches that have a lot of money. And that makes Christ look bad. Because they are to be ambassadors. God gives us the goods of this world, brothers and sisters, to steward them, to use them for the furtherance of his kingdom. And when we hoard our wealth, as that rich ruler did, we don't realize that we are literally hoarding up for ourselves wrath. If God has given us any measure of financial benefit in this world, we need to do a couple of things that one, we need to thank him for it. You have to remember that the rich young ruler was told because told to do what he was told to do because Christ knew what was in his heart. He didn't tell that to Nicodemus, he didn't tell that to Joseph of Arimathea. He didn't even tell it to Zacchaeus, who was rich by extortion, it means. Zacchaeus was overcome by the power of the Spirit and said, Hey, I'm going to repent. If I've stolen from somebody, I'm going to return back four or five times. That's Old Testament law. If God blesses us with a certain level of financial benefit, then we should thank him and we should be stewards of what he has given us. And we cannot be stewards if we worship the money and what it represents. And it's very easy for us in our culture to be impressed with gold. Listen carefully. On Judgment Day, the gold won't help you. He's going to ask you, what did you do with what I gave to you? But he's not going to be impressed by the gifts that he's given you because guess what? It's all a gift. It's all a gift. And he has blessed us. So let us take heed to these lessons. Let's pray. Lord, please help us to take heed to your word this week. In Jesus' precious name, amen.